All right, you guys can open up to the book of 2 John. 2 John. Just go to the back. Hang a left a couple of pages. Revelation, 3 John, 2 John. Going from the back. If you don't have uh, a Bible or if you uh, would like, feel free to grab one of those uh, Scripture journals over there. I'd love for you guys to have those and to follow along uh, in that. We're going to be in the book of 2 John this morning. And when I say we're going to be in the book of 2 John this morning, I mean we're covering the entire book of 2 John this morning. We took all of 3 John last week. We're going to take all of 2 John this week. So how's that for picking up the pace over a year in Exodus? We've got two in two weeks, moving, moving pretty quick. At this rate, we'll be done with the Bible by Thanksgiving or so, and then we'll figure out what to do from there. Um, what we looked at last week is how each of these books kind of, or each of these, I, I don't even feel right calling them books because they're just like, this was just 13 verses, but each of these letters kind of serves its own purpose. And what we saw is that from the very beginning, the early church considered all three of these letters to kind of come in a, in, in a, in a pack. They all go together. They're, they're all unified and each one kind of does its own thing and serves its own, its own purpose. And what we saw is that all three letters kind of fit together. The third, the third letter we looked at last week first, and I think this is the, the best way to do this is kind of move from the back to the front. The third, the third one was directed to a single elder at a church from John, an elder uh, likely in Ephesus who's writing this letter. So he's writing this, these, these, uh, all three things together. The third letter is specifically saying, I commend to you the, the courier of this letter, and I want to warn you about some other guys and what they're doing, and I'll eventually come to you and I'll explain further why these guys are bad news. And we looked at that verse that said that uh, I rejoice when I see that my children are walking in the truth. And we talked about the nature of truth and the fact that it's okay to say that something is right and something is wrong, something is holy, something is unholy, something is good, and something is evil. Now that flies against everything that our culture teaches, because what our culture teaches is that the only thing that makes something good or bad is really kind of how the culture feels at the moment. And that really the, the ultimate good is whatever you deem to be your ultimate good. And you can, you can claim that as long as you want, as long as it doesn't go against my ultimate good, and then we just throw it up to the whims of the culture to figure out which is right. So what we said is, no, there's an objective standard for truth, and it's going to be Jesus Christ himself. It's going to be his teachings, and it's going to be his word. And so we went through all of that last week, and I recount some of that. One to say, if you weren't here last week, you probably need to go listen to that message uh, online or the podcast, because it sets the stage for all of these letters. It is the baseline for everything that John is going to be doing. Because if he's going to say, this is what it means to be a Christian, this is what it looks like to be a Christian, we're going to have to figure out what it is he's using, and we've got to define terms, and truth is one that will come up over and over and over again in these letters. We'll see it this morning, how often he uses it in the second Letter. So the book of 2 John is going to do uh, a little bit more. What it's going to do is it's going it's to push us a little bit more on this idea of truth, and then it's going to build on this idea of truth. It's going to build off of that foundation that we looked at last week. And so what this letter is, is it's, it's a letter written to the church as a whole, not just to one person, but to the church as a, as a whole. At the very beginning of 2 John, it says, 
the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now don't get lost in that language, that is figurative language, and it is almost certainly talking, as you go through the rest of the book, you can see this, it is almost certainly not talking about a woman that it is written to. It is a, a, a figurative language to talk about a church. So the elect lady would be the church that John is writing to, and her children would be the congregants of that church. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read the entirety of 2 John just like I did with 3 John last week and then after I read that we're going to we're going to dive into this letter and we're going to work we're going to work through it. So uh, 2 John we'll start at the very beginning. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from the God, from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and in love. There's that word truth again, over and over and over again, just in these opening verses. I rejoice greatly to find some of my children walking in the truth. There it is again. Just as, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward." Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I would hope to come to you and talk face to faith, face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So there it is. That's the entirety of the book of 2 John. And as, you, as 1 John made clear about truth, 2 John continues that same theme. He's going to just continue. And what 2 John will do for us, this, is, this would have been read almost certainly aloud to the church this was written to, and this would have served as effectively a preface to what 1 John is. And 1 John was likely written to several different churches in the area. So 2 John is the, the preface, the introduction to 1 John that was a sermon for everyone. So what I just did likely would have happened in a house church uh, somewhere around Ephesus, and they would have said exactly what I just did, read that aloud, and it would have served to say, now let's move to the letter or the sermon from John. We'll do that next week. But what we're going to do this week is we're going to see how this introduction begins to set the stage for all that's going to come uh, in the following weeks. He wants to make sure that his church knows the truth, that his church walks in the truth, and that he can tell the difference between truth and a lie. Again, the same thing that we saw coming out of last week. That's the thrust of his exhortation to begin this letter and really carries throughout this letter. In the opening two verses, he uses the word truth three times. So in two verses, he uses the, the, the word truth three times, and then he keeps on saying it after that. Truth, 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 truth. It is driven home over and over and over. And that's why I wanted to begin that last week, looking at the idea 
of truth because of its foundation here. And then in verse 2, he'll introduce us to an idea that will carry us again throughout as well. So there's a couple of things that kind of come out as we go throughout the, the books of John. One is going to be truth. The other is going to be this idea, this picture of abiding. Now, abiding is a word that we don't use a whole lot outside of church circles, but it's an important word for John. It's important here. It's important in his Gospels as well. I'm not going to fully explain how that works today. We'll get to that over the next few weeks, but we are going to look at it uh, some uh, today. So verse 4, then uh, the truth theme continues. He brings that up again. And then in verse 5, we get what is almost an identical verse to what we saw the week before. What we see in in verse 5, he says, I rejoice to see my children walking in the truth over and over again. You see, for John, being a Christian was not some theological abstract. It was not just a matter of adhering to certain principles. It was him saying, this is what it looks like. Let me give you the tangible feel for this truth. Let me show you what this is. It is real. It is far more than just some kind of like mental exercise that we are doing here. You can touch it. You can feel it. And even more important than that, what we'll see is that you can know it. You can know Christianity. You can know truth. And this drives his passion in these letters over and over again. So why does John see this as so important though? Why can't he do, like we talked about last week, why can't he just kind of back off and say, you know what, let those other churches or those other people in the culture do their thing. We're going to do ours. Here's what it looks like for us. Let's just do our thing. Why does he insist on this idea of truth? I'll put a picture up here. I wonder if any of you guys might know, and I'll take some guess here, any idea where that picture was taken? Anybody? Throwing Anybody? Nobody? All right. It's kind, of, it's kind of vague, right? So what if I told you that it was tied to uh, World War II? Would you have an idea of where that might be then? Nope. And that's the idea. So this is Lake Toplitz. That's the name of it. Anybody ever heard of that lake? Good. That's a good sermon illustration when nobody knows what I'm talking about. So this is Lake Toplitz is the name of it. This is deep in the mountains in Austria somewhere. It is very hard to get to. It is very hard to, to, to find because you, can't, you can only get there coming in one way. The backside, you can see it's got these steep mountains around it. So it's kind of closed on the back. You can come in from the front, but you've got to cross another lake before you can get to this lake. It served for, uh, for Germany uh, as a pretty... Um, uh, a pretty good place for the, the Germans to test a lot of different things. This was, uh, it's got all kinds of secrets to it, all kinds of things that we probably will never know that are lost to history. But during World War II, this was a top secret base for the Germans where they would test a lot of their underwater things. They would test different sonar things. They would test different torpedoes and how torpedoes would blow things up. They would do that here in this lake because nobody could get to it. Nobody was going to find it. This was a secure location for them. But it also uh, earned another name besides Lake Toplitz uh, in the I don't know if I'm saying that right. I've got to say that with a German accent for that to work, but I can't do that. So um, it served another purpose, and it kind of came with another name as well. 
You see, throughout World War II, the Germans would take over cities, and as they would sack these cities and these countries, they would raid them for their artwork, for their jewels, for their gold, for their silver, uh, for all of those type of things. They would raid them for those things, and then what happened with most of it is not that it got destroyed or not that it was even taken by the soldiers. It was put on a truck or put on a train, and it was taken somewhere. Now, some of this stuff has been found. Sometimes it was hid in caves that were nearby. Sometimes it was hid in just ordinary uh, homes, like uh, in, in just ordinary farmhouses. And they would hide these things there in the cellar, or sometimes even in plain sight in these farmhouses. And it became a kind of a storehouse. And so some of this stuff has been, fe- has been found. But almost all historians would agree that there is still a ton of gold and treasure that has never been found that, German, that the Germans took during World War II. They don't know what happened to it. They know it was put on a train, they know it was put on a truck, and it was hauled away somewhere. They don't know where it could be. And so there's all kinds of different rumors out there about how this happened and where it might have gone. And many people believe that at the bottom of this lake is all kinds of gold. Because it would have made a lot of sense. A lake can serve as a vault better than a cave can because it's hard to get to. And especially this lake is extra deep. It's extra treacherous to dive into because you have a layer of dead trees that is just below the surface that makes it hard for you to go diving. And it is almost 300 300 feet deep in certain spots. So it is very cold, very deep, very hard to dive into. So this would have made a great place to put this gold, either so you could hide it and come back and get it later, or so that you could just get rid of it altogether so that somebody else didn't take it and somebody else didn't use it for... uh, to to change into currency to help fuel the war. So this is what Germany did a lot. And a lot of people assume that a lake is where it would be. And this one would be the perfect place for it. So uh, this lake, having been used for these German war, war purposes, would have been perfect. And you add to that some folklore that a couple somewhere uh, after Hitler had died, but before the war was over, tells a story of German soldiers showing up with all of these trucks weighed down so much that they couldn't get through the mud to the lake, and they forced this couple out of their home to to get a a horse and a, a cart behind it that could make it through the mud, and they would take these very heavy trunks to the lake, and they got thrown into the lake. This couple had no idea what was in there. They were just forced to do it. So this is kind of local folklore around this lake. So you take all of that together... And this, this uh, lake became known as the German El Dorado. It was the place to find gold. And if you could find the gold in this lake, you would be wealthy beyond measure, not to mention the contributions you would make to history. So fast forward uh, several, several years to uh, 1999, where 60 Minutes decided we're going to go dive into this lake and we're going to find out what is at the bottom of this lake. So what they did is they got the same crew that found where the Titanic was to come and map the bottom of the lake, although they didn't get it all done. They got parts of it done, and they found a place they should go. So they sent a robot down to the bottom of this lake, and sure enough, when they got there, there were trunks that were there. And those trunks were at the bottom of the lake, and they couldn't really get them open exactly right. 
But when they finally got them open, there was not gold there at all. In fact, there was something totally different. So what they had to do, because what was there, they couldn't quite get to the surface. They had to send a guy down in a, in a one-man submarine so that he could go down and, and, and physically grab the, the stuff that was down there in these trunks. And there was trunks just all over the place. So this guy went down there, and when he got down there, what he found was sort of like a, a treasure. But it wasn't gold, it was paper. Just paper. You can go ahead and put the, the next thing up there. And this is what he found down there. Now, whenever he would touch this, it would just crumble into nothing. So he couldn't even pick it up to bring it to the surface because as soon as he touched that, the, the water of the years had so decomposed that that it just it faded into nothing. But what was down there in all of these boxes was thousands upon thousands of English pounds, English currency. It was all over the place down there. And what had happened is that, that those trunks were not full of gold, but they were full of paper, and it was paper that was English currency. And what this English currency was was not real English currency. It was English currency that was made by the Germans. It was actually made by some Jewish artisans that were pulled out of a, uh, of a concentration camp, and they made these counterfeit bills. And to this day, most would say that these are the best produced counterfeit bills in the history of the world. So much so that most English bankers could not tell the difference between one of these counterfeit bills and a real, and a real one. They were almost completely identical. You see, most counterfeit is done just enough to get it passed off in some seedy place and, and, and really not stay in circulation for long. These bills were made to stay in circulation for a long, long time time. Now, 60 Minutes saw this as a massive disappointment because they thought they were going to get some gold, and that makes for some really, really good TV. So they saw that as a, um, as a disappointment, but historians saw this as a remarkable find because it had long been rumored that Germany did this, but there had never been any actual proof that these things existed. You see, Germany tried to win World War II with a lot of different tactics, and there's a lot of different ways to win a war. Some of those are from the outside in. This is tanks, and this is blowing stuff up, and this is uh, air warfare and bombing things and what you think of when you think of war. But sometimes what it is is from the inside out that you wage war. So we know some of that as espionage, as spy work, right? We also know some of that as propaganda, so you, you put propaganda out to your enemy, and what you hope is that uh, one of a, a couple of things happen. Either that your enemy's people will turn against their own, their own government, that your enemy's people will turn against themselves, and you get so much infighting that they forget to fight against you, uh, or that they grow in such despair from your propaganda that they just give up and they quit. Germany tried all of those things as well. But another way to do it is through the economy of your enemy. And what Germany knew is if they could flood the market in, in, in England with all of these counterfeit bills, then they could ruin England from the inside out. Because there would be so much counterfeit currency that the English pound would be worth almost nothing. Especially if it became uh, very apparent that this had happened. Now we know some of these bills made it into circulation, Probably they, that's how uh, uh, German spies were paid, is through these, these counterfeit 
uh, currency, this, these counterfeit bills. But not very many made it into circulation. And most ended up here at the bottom of the lake. Why they never made it into circulation, historians don't know. Uh, it's one of those things that gets chalked up in war to just good fortune and good luck so that the good guys would win, that they were unable to pull off this plan. But Germany knew that if you could fake people and you could put fake currency in there, it would so disrupt the system that England would not know what to do. The counterfeit bills at the, the bottom of Lake Toplitz were some of the best that had ever been made. They were close to perfect. But we know if it had made it, it would have ruined England because you can't tell the difference between what is real and what is fake. Protecting your currency from counterfeiters is a massive job for any government. It has to be done in order to prevent uh, and, and to protect the citizens and prevent the waging the war from the inside out. And so it is with us this morning as well. The same is true for us. We too must be on constant lookout for imposters. We too must be on constant lookout for counterfeits. And this is what drives most of what John is writing about in his letters. He wants us to see that discerning the truth from a lie, real from fake, he wants us to see how important that is. And he wants us to do this because he knows that, that, that this is how Satan works primarily. This is one of Satan's chief tactics. Just like a, a good uh, a war strategist would, would plan to do this to attack both from the outside and from the inside, so Satan works for us as well, or works against us uh, as well. He operates in deception. He loves to give us poor imitations of the real thing. You see, here's the thing. Satan can't create. Not like God can. You see, God can, can, can speak it, and it is there. He can create. He speaks things into existence. He is constantly creating. He, he doesn't stop with this, and he can create, but Satan cannot do that. Well, this is a massive limitation for Satan. So what Satan does instead is the best that he can get, a, get by with. He imitates. He can't create, so he imitates. But Satan's imitations are always a bad copy of the original. It never quite achieves the same look, the same feel. It never quite works like the original does. Y'all ever ordered anything online? Or how about this? Have your kids ever got you to use that app, Wish? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like show of hands, anybody ever use that? So if your kids ever, get, just parents, if your kids ever get, want you to get something off of Wish and you're like, wow, that's really great. I can get like this scooter for $3 and it's normally $300. Don't do it. I don't care how cheap it is. I don't, know, I don't care how great it is. Don't do it. Because what you're going to get is going to be the biggest piece of junk you've ever seen and your kids will think it's great until it falls apart. And then you have to deal with them crying. It's like buying a balloon whenever you go to an amusement park. It's going to pop at some point and it's going to ruin everybody's day. So don't do it. Don't, don't buy the thing, right? Um, this happens when you buy stuff online all the time. Just don't do that. 
This is the same thing that Satan does for us. He gives us cheap imitations. And he promises that they will work just as well. And he frames them whenever we look at them. And he says, look, it looks just as good as what God was offering you. In fact, I think it's even a little bit better. Did God really say? You see, that's how he began. It's by deception. He makes it look so good but then it never is quite what it promises to be. From the very beginning in the garden, Satan took what God had said, creates doubt in Eve's mind by saying, did God really say? That's propaganda, working again from the inside out. And then he takes that propaganda and he twists it and he offers up a lie that's very close to the original, but not exactly the same. And he says, if you eat that, you will be like God. Isn't that after all what God said? Well, kind of not exactly. He didn't threaten to hurt them. He worked over Adam and Eve from the inside, sowing seeds of doubt. Seeds of disbelief, and then offering up a cheap imitation, which they took hold of. Satan has always worked like this because this is how Satan has to work. Because he doesn't have the power that God has. Because he's not able to create and to give like God does. Because he doesn't give, he takes. He doesn't create, he imitates. This is his tactics. And what John wants is for you to not be fooled. He wants you to know the difference between what is true and what is a lie, what is real and what is counterfeit. This is John's heart for us this morning. He says, don't be fooled. Make no mistake about it. He's not just, be, he's not just saying, don't be fooled by that other person over there. He's saying, don't fool yourself either. Don't convince yourself of something that's not true about yourself. You've got the truth after all. This is what he says in the first couple of verses. He says the truth abides in you. And what he wants us to see is that you can measure what is real versus what is fake, not just by all these other things, but by what is abiding in you, what is a part of you, the truth that is within you. So if we continue on in verse 5, John gives us a little bit more. He's going to explain a little bit more how this idea works. And what we're talking about here this morning, this is the the spiritual concept of discernment. This would be the word that we would put on this, discernment. And that can play out in a lot of different ways. And John says, all right, this is how discernment's going to play out for you guys. Here's how you do this. And he says in verse 5, effectively, I love it that you guys are walking in the truth. That makes me so happy. That gives me so much joy. But I want to add just a little bit more to that. Don't Don't just walk in the truth, but make sure that you love each other as you do it. Make sure that you love one another as you walk in the truth. Now, I'm not exactly sure. We don't know exactly why John felt compelled to kind of build onto that foundation with this idea of love. We don't know why he did this. But what we do know is that this happens a lot The common temptation for people when you start talking about walking in the truth is that people just become jerks. People just become jerks. And then what, what ends up happening is they end up not loving someone in the truth, but instead hating someone because of the truth. And what John wants to say is let this love drive you to care for people and to love one another, not to 
not to, not to dismiss people and to hate them. You see, many consider it the height of arrogance to hold to a standard of truth. And a lot of times they see this as the height of arrogance because unfortunately that's exactly what Christians have taught them to do. We as Christians have, far, the Christian community has shown the, this idea of truth far too often to be a license to arrogance. But when you view this properly, when you set it within the context that John gives us here, the call to discern the truth from a lie is rooted in a deep humility and a submission to something far greater than ourselves. It should not provo- provoke or produce arrogance in us. It should not produce a self-righteousness in us. It should produce a deep humility within us. Far too often we think that we get to define the standard of truth and that, and that we are the, the keepers of the truth and that produces this arrogance in us. But we are not the producers of truth. It is Jesus Christ in His Word that we stand on. That is what defines our standard of truth. So we dare not puff ourselves up and become a pompous show for people to see because we, we have this badge of truth across our chest and we say, this is what I'm here for, to hold people account to this truth because this is what I see and this is what I define. John is saying that's not how truth works. That's not how it plays itself out. Don't just walk in truth, but also follow that in love. We stand on truth with deep humility in our posture, with sincerity in our voice, and with kindness in our hearts. And if you do not stand on truth in that, in that vein, in that idea, then you do not stand on truth in any sense of the way that John has commanded us to. Not only do we stand on it in that way, our adherence to truth is done so because we love others, because we love the stranger, and because we love ourselves. It is not done out of some sense of a self-righteous duty. It is done out of love. Think you need to make a comment online on Facebook to say, this is what it looks like to be true. I want to just plead with you first, don't do that. It's just not a good place to do that. But even, even, even more than that, if you're in a conversation and you say, hang on just a second, what you're saying is not true, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't line up, and this is part of what John has called us to do, why are you saying that to that person? Are you saying that because you want to prove how you are right? Are you saying that because you want to dominate them with the truth and say, this is how it should be, you're an idiot, you can't be thinking this type of thing? Or are you doing this because you love that person? If you are not doing it because you love that person, then you've got to stop, back away, and reconsider what is driving you to that moment of truth. It's not that what you're saying is wrong or, or, or it's right, but it's the, the spirit in which it is done that is equally important. So for us, we don't define truth. It defines us. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. That is our standard. But its application is in love. 
This is at least part of what John means when he says that we are to love one another. It is in truth. But then he keeps on going. He defines that love as, as being a people who walk in the commands. You see, if you keep reading there, what he says is, love one another, and this is love, that we keep his commandments. So, so for John, love, actions, obedience, they all are so intertwined with one another, you can't separate them. Love, truth, actions, obedience, it's all together. There is no doubt, and I want to be clear about this this morning, there is no doubt that the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that we are saved by grace alone. John will cover that here in just a couple of chapters when we get to 1 John. Our works and our merit, uh, our works merit nothing Nothing and contribute nothing to our salvation. Being good enough will not save us. But Scripture is also clear that if you want to know what it looks like to be a Christian, then what you'll see is love and obedience that is the mark of the life of a disciple. John's teaching here is clue. Here is John's teaching here about truth is clear. You start with truth, which leads to love, and is followed by obedience. That's the flow of the Christian life. Truth, love, obedience. Truth, love, obedience. This is what separates us from the world. This is what makes us different. We'll talk more in a few weeks what it looks like when we fail here. Because that's not good news for us if what we're saying is what separates us from the world is that we are obedient because you and I both know we are not ultimately obedient people. We fall short of that all the time. But what John wants us to see is that that is the mark of a disciple. That is what it looks like to be a Christian. It does not merit anything for us but it is part of how we separate truth from a lie. It is part of how we determine what is the counterfeit bill and what is the real one. So for now, we'll talk in the same broad strokes that John does, and we'll talk about obedience and commandments, but we'll, we'll dive more into that here in just a couple of weeks. I want to give us one more thing that we can take home with us this morning as we finish this letter. Second John verse 7. I'll read this again. For many deceivers have gone out to the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such, <clears throat> such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So John comes back to this idea of being on guard in who we listen to. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, he says. That scary word antichrist is in there. We'll get to that one too. I don't have time to touch that one this morning. But what he says is, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They don't, they don't confess the coming of Jesus. Don't listen to these guys. Be wiser. Be smarter. Don't listen. There are deceitful people in the world who do not love Jesus that will use you, that will abuse you, and that will make you a tool for their own glory. Look out for the counterfeits, he says. Be Aware, and this is just as true today, Satan has not lost an ounce of skill in deceiving God's people. So often things can sound true, but aren't. So the question is, how do you know what is true and what is not? 
Verse 9, everyone who goes, ahead, goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Do you want to know how so many imposters can make it on TV talking about the Bible? How so many imposters can infiltrate the church and, 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 and become so successful talking a different gospel than the one that Paul and that John preached? Do you want to know how that happens? It happens because people don't know their Bible. It happens because the Word does not abide in them. It happens because the Bible isn't important. It happens because people have not submitted themselves to God's Word that they know it. And this is not some sort of legalistic standard that I'm throwing out to you guys saying, well, you've got to know and you've got to, you've got to have this great head knowledge of things. This is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you want to know the difference between what is true and what is a lie, then you've got to know the Word of God. You have to study it. You have to know it. You have to be in it. And it has to abide in you. You have to abide in it, and it must abide in you. Do you want to have better discernment in who you trust and who you listen to and what you believe? Know your Bible. This doesn't mean that you come with this kind of arrogant, this is how it is, this is what the doctrine says, and you have, to, you have to preach it and teach it exactly like this. You've got to be humble. You've got to have a heart that's willing to listen. But you've got to be able to tell the difference between what is true and what is a lie. Any bank teller will tell you that they don't study the counterfeits whenever you become a bank teller. They study the real thing. And if they know the real thing, they can tell what the counterfeit is. This is how it is for us. We need to know the difference between a truth and a lie. We need to know our Bibles. We need to dive in. We need to ask questions. We need to study them together. We need to listen on Sunday mornings. We need to, we need to be able to have conversations with one another. We need to listen in our, in our cars. We need to listen as we, as we walk. We need, all of these things need to be a part of us. The Word needs to be in you in such a way that it... That, that you can discern a lie about God's Word before you even have to go to the Word. You can just say, that does not seem right to me. That does not feel right. And I will find out why. But I know it's not because the Word is in me. And that is my challenge to you this morning, is to know your Bibles. Dive into them. It's, it's February the, the 16th. So what that means is you guys are all done with your New Year's resolutions at this point. All of that's over with. You can, we, can, we, can, we can pretend that the last six weeks, seven weeks didn't happen, right? There's still reading plans sitting out there for you guys to jump on. You can pick up on February 16th. You're probably done with Leviticus at this point, and you're smooth sailing from here if you want to keep on with some of those reading plans, right? Jump on one of those. Jump on. You, you, it doesn't have to be January 1st for you to start a reading plan. Reading plans don't work for you. You don't like just checking off the box. That's fine. Then dive into 1 John. No, no 1 John backwards and forwards as we go through this. And then hold me account when I say something stupid. Know your Bibles. We'll give you every tool that we can think of to help you with that. That's what we want you to do is to know your Bible so that you can discern what is true and what is lie. And not only that you can do that externally, but you can do that internally as well. You can look at your own life and you can say, does my life line up with what this word teaches? And if it doesn't, 
Where is it different? Because I need to make sure that what I've got is real. And you let God refine you and remake you because the Word abides in you. The truth abides in you. And as we'll see here in a couple of weeks, because Christ abides in you, which is really just three ways of saying the exact same thing. Because He is the Word, He is the truth, and He abides in us, and He sustains us, and He nourishes us. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, even as I preach through these words, as I think about them, as they come out of my mouth, I am uh, so aware of how many times that I feel like a fake. That I can see that my life doesn't line up the way that, that John asks it to for me. To, that how many times I don't follow the commands. How many times I draw from my own wisdom, from my own self to discern things and not from the truth that abides in me. So Father, even as I preach these words, I ask that, this, that your spirit would, which would lead me to the cross. And that there I would find forgiveness. That there I would find a place where I could I could know I could know the, the truth of my faith not because I am good enough but because Christ has saved me. Father, I I pray I, I, along with Augustine and his words to command what you will but grant what you command. Father, work in my heart Work in the heart of the people of Providence Church so that you command anything through your sovereign will, but that you, you grant us the, the grace and the mercy to follow through on those commands. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.